All right, we're going to be in Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3, verse 1. These are the nations the Lord left in order to test Israel. Since the Israelites had fought none of these in any of the wars with Canaan, this was to teach the future generations of Israelites how to fight in battle, especially those who had not fought before. These nations included the five rulers of the Philistines and all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Sidonians, and the Hivites, who lived in the Lebanese mountains from Mount Baal Hermon as far as the entrance to Hamath. The Lord left them to test Israel to determine if they would keep the Lord's commands he had given their fathers through Moses. But they settled among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the Jebusites. The Israelis took their daughters as wives for themselves, gave their own daughters to their sons, and worshipped their gods. Now, before we were introduced to the first judge, Israel's first judge, verses 1 through 6 elaborate on the test the Lord had announced in verse, chapter 2, verse 22. The consequences of their failure and their depth of moral corruption. These verses express two lessons God was determined to teach this present generation, the, the generation that was alive, that was living when chapter 3 was, was written, or at the time of chapter 3. The first lesson he intended to teach them, to, for them to learn, was the nature and significance of their war against their enemies. This was the land that God had given the nation of Israel, and all they had to do was to drive out the Canaanites and claim it as his gift to them. The test was to see if they would accept God as their commander-in-chief and take on the responsibility of fulfilling his agenda. The second lesson God intended them to learn was whether or not the Israelites would see and understand their need for him. This would be proven by their willingness to remain faithful to him and obey the commands God had given their ancestors through Moses. However, the continued presence of the Canaanite nations demonstrated Israel's failure and their ultimate need for a savior. Now as Christians, it's not easy to live in a world that would rather have us go away or silenced than to hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ. But as long as God's Spirit is here, as long as God's Spirit remains active in and through the life of, belie of the li lives of believers, God will continue to convict the world of its sin and nothing, absolutely nothing will be able to stop, stop him. But the devil knows this. He knows he's going, going up against God and he knows he can't defeat him. So what does he do instead? He goes after God's children. He, goes, he comes after us. He goes after you. You know, instead of fighting God directly, he uses his weapons to fight against us to prevent that message 
from being heard. He will do anything possible for you not to talk about Christ, for you not to live a Christian life, for you just to forget about, put the Bible down and, and just live life as if nothing was going on, as if there was no transformation in your life. He will use pride, fear, hatred, greed, and lust to divide us and ruin the relationship we have with God. Friends, we are in a spiritual war. And sadly, many have fallen in battle because they gave up or they thought they could fight the enemy on their own. If you don't want to be a casualty of war, if you don't want to be that person that, has, that the devil has mortally wounded with his weapons, you must know who you're battling against and you must trust God to lead and guide you. You see, these two lessons I mentioned, was the, God, the two lessons God was determined to teach Israel are the same two lessons He wants you to learn when the enemy has wounded you, when the enemy has left you to die. Number one, without God, you will be incapable of fighting this war on your own. You won't be able to fight it on your own physical, emotional, and intellectual abilities. And two, a sincere acknowledgement of your need for Him. See, once you learn these two lessons, God will come and rescue you. He will heal and restore you. And He will give you the strength to continue the battle. Listen to how 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10 puts it. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will reveal him, will him, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, the book of Joshua and the first chapter of Judges, we're told about the various nations that Israel fought and, and battled against. But we now see that there were some that they hadn't. God had left these Canaanite nations behind specifically to test this new generation and how they would respond militarily and spiritually. Remember, Prior to this, God was the one doing all the real work. He was the one that was driving out the nations. He was the one that was kicking these nations out. Or he was the one doing all the hard work. Until he told them he'd step aside. Because why? What did they do? They were disobedient and they were being unfaithful. So, this was a combination of their choice and God's will. He also left these Canaanites to teach future generations of Israelites how to fight in battle, especially those who had not fought before. God wanted His people to be warriors who would know the pressures and challenges that came with fighting different types of enemies. Now, verse 3 gives us a list of 
of who these nations were. You had the five rulers of the Philistines and all the Canaanites. Now this probably refers to the five regional Philistine tribal leaders that control the coastal areas of the Canaanite controlled lands. Then the Sidonites and the Hivites are mentioned. These were also people groups living in different regions of the lands who would eventually play an important role throughout the Old Testament. This introduction closes with a sobering with the sobering news of three specific areas the Israelites had utterly failed Yahweh. The first one, the first area where they failed, they stopped fighting and they settled among their enemies. The second area where they failed, they began to intermarry with the enemy in direct violation of Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. And thirdly, in the third area they, they completely failed, was that they worshipped the gods of their enemies, which violated God's first commandment and was also prohibited in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Now, here's another great lesson we can learn from Israel's failure. If you don't want to fail as a Christian, continue the fight. Don't settle among the enemy. Refuse the temptation to compromise. It's very easy. We live in a world where there's so many things out there that, that, that are so tempting for us that we can easily fall into and, and, and just enjoy and relax and not have to worry about anything. So many things out there that will keep us distracted so that we won't have to think about what God has done in our lives, what God is doing in our lives, and will keep us from thinking about God. So many distractions out there. And then there's so much pushback from the world as well. It becomes easy to have that mindset of, you know, I'm just not going to ruffle any feathers. I'm just going to sit here. Or I'm just going to live among the Canaanites, live among the world, and just settle and just live peacefully with everybody. Well, no, that's not what God has called us to do. There's a big difference between being in the world and being of the world. Now, I love how the New Living Translation puts Romans 12 to. There it says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you which is good and pleasing and perfect. If you don't want to fail as a Christian, stay away from anyone who is a bad influence. Now, I'm not saying don't have any friends that aren't Christians. I'm not saying that, that you can't hang out with someone that's not a Christian. Just be aware who may be influencing you. 
Again, in the New Living Translation, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4 through 16 says this, Don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live in darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Now, if you're not married yet, this is an important concept to understand. If you get with someone that doesn't have that passion for the Lord, there's just going to be so many issues, so many problems. There's just going to be so many differences. And how to raise your kids, what church to go to, what traditions to follow. But if you're equally yoked, if you have the same faith and you have the same God and, and He's number one in your life, it's gonna, I mean, it's going to be challenging, but there's blessings behind it. Again, just be aware of who's influencing, who's capturing your emotions, your thoughts, and who's diverting them away from God. And thirdly, if you don't want to fail as a Christian, get rid of those things that are more important to you than God. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 to 5, it says, You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol or any kind of image of anything in heaven or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. An idol doesn't have to be a little statue or a painting. It can be anything. It can be money. It could be power. It could be fame. It could be a hobby. Whatever it is, that's... There are many things that people are worshiping. And we have to be careful and say, no, I don't want to worship anyone but the Lord. Let's move on with our reading here. Chapter 3, verse 7. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot the, they forgot the Lord their God and worshipped the Baals and the Ashtoreths. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he sold them to Kushan. And I'm going to skip that word because I'm going to again tear it up. I listened to the, to the names last week, and I really tore it up. So, um, Well, he sold them to Kushan um, Ar, king of Aram Naharim, and the Israelites served him eight years. The Israelites cried out to the Lord, so the Lord raised up Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's youngest brother, 
as a deliverer to save the Israelites. The Spirit of the Lord came on him, and he judged Israel. Othniel went out to battle, and the Lord handed over Cushan Ar, king of Aram, to him, so that Othniel had overpowered him. Then the land was peaceful forty years, and Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Now, although it may have started long before this, in this passage I just read, we see the beginning of Israel's cycle of misery that shapes the relationship between God and His people throughout this entire book. This section, as with most others you'll see, begins with the notation the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. The author makes it clear that the disobedience of Israel was religious in character. The people abandoned the Lord and worshipped the gods and goddesses of the people around them in Canaan. So what did God do? God responded to their disobedience with passionate anger and disciplines them by allowing them to be in bondage to a pagan king for eight years. Imagine that Lord saying, you know what? If that's what you want, have it. That's, you want to live that lifestyle? Go ahead, have it. And after eight years, the Israelites realized, man, I'm in slavery. I'm in bondage. It took them eight years for them to finally realize this king, this lifestyle isn't freedom. They have me enslaved. God essentially gave them what they wanted, and now they're reaping what they sowed. Well, again, after eight long years of feeling the pressure of this king's foot on the back of their necks, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. According to the Hebrew word, this outcry wasn't one of remorse. It wasn't one of repentance. It wasn't one of, Lord, I, I'm sorry. I blew, we blew it as a people. I'm sorry. No, this was... This was an outcry for help because of the pain they were in. Well, like any good father would do for his child, even when they'd been disobedient, God raised up a judge named Othniel as a deliverer to save the Israelites. Othniel, that's the first name you ought to remember. Othniel was the first of six major judges in this book. He was born from the tribe of Judah and was nephew of and eventually the brother-in-law of Caleb. Part of his and his wife's story is mentioned all the way back in chapter 1 verses 13 through 15. His name in Hebrew means Lion of God. According to verses 9 and 10, he, he had only two 
qualifications for the deliverer role. He was raised by the Lord, and he was empowered by the Lord's Spirit. We then see how God used, used him as Israel's judge and deliverer by defeating the king who had the people in bondage. Othniel's victory was not linked to any special skill or power. We don't see him like Samson, you know, having this special ability or power. It was the Lord who had handed the pagan king over to him. The Lord had done all the work. It was him. It was nothing that Othniel did. It was, it was all God. Then we see the cycle ending by Israel enjoying 40 years of peace until Othniel's death. Significantly, we're told that it was the land, it was the land rather than the people that enjoyed rest. Now because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, God can use any of us to be an Othniel. If it's the Lord's will, He can raise you up to lead others. He can use you. Even if you're at a young age and you're thinking, no way, I, I'm too young to, to... You don't know that. God used young people, old people. He used women. He used men. He used them to lead. You may think of yourself, you may think to yourself, there's no way. There's no way you can lead. But the thing is, you're not raising yourself up as a leader. God is. He's raising you up. You're not doing any of the work. He's doing it. Yeah, you know, He may be building you up and there may be certain things that, you know, He wants you to accomplish. There may be certain things He wants to teach you. But he's going to teach you those things through faithfulness and obedience. I didn't think I had it in me either. I didn't think that I could do it. I look back and I remember those conversations I had in my own mind and with other people. No way. God can't use me in that capacity. No way. I'm just, I'm nobody. And even if I, you know, even if I wanted to be, like, even if I thought of myself as a good teacher, man, that's too much responsibility. There's no way to lead others. No, man, I'm a follower. I'm not a leader. But the Lord called me to lead. And you know what? I'm just being obedient to what he's called me to do. I'm just, Lord, okay. I'm doing this because you've called me and because I love you and care about you and, and I want to live for you. I'm just going to be obedient. But I'm going to need you to lead me, to guide me. And he has. And that's... Again, that would be your heart too. Whatever, if it's, a, if it's a small home fellowship, if it's 
leading worship, if it's leading um, a children's ministry, whatever it is. I mean, I can give you a million examples, but whatever it is he's called you to lead, do it. And watch him. Watch him as he does a work in your life by just being obedient. Romans eleven twenty nine says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He doesn't know what that means. Irrevocable. It means that they can't be taken back or withdrawn. When God gives you a gift, He gives it to you. It's yours. When He calls you to do something, He's called you to do it. The gifts and calling He's given you are yours. And either you can use them, or yeah, or you can just throw it away. Be like, nah, not for me. Too much responsibility, too much, too much work. The choice is yours. It's your choice what you're going to do with the gifts and calling He's given you. If you don't want to lead because you're scared of failure, remember that God has or will fill you and empower you with the Holy Spirit to lead successfully. And He's God isn't in the business of failing. He's never going to fail. He's going to accomplish His will and purpose with or without you. But, but if He's calling you to do it, I mean, it's going to be successful if you hand it over and just say, Lord, all right, I'm all yours. Again, it's to be successful. He wants you to be successful. He doesn't want you to fail. So you must trust Him to guide you. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not rely on your own understanding. Think about Him in all your ways, and He will guide you on the right paths. Let me tell you this. God will not set you up in a leader pos leadership position and just leave you there on your own to figure it out. He's not going to say, here, lead this church, lead this people, lead this family, lead, you know, and, and just leave you alone and say, hey, okay, now you figure it out. Now, it's your choice if you want to do that, if you just want to take God out of the picture and try to figure it out on your own. If you allow him, if you let him, if you just surrender to him and say, Lord, I just need you to guide me, to show me what it is, how to lead, he will. He'll, he'll show you. He'll teach you. He'll guide you. God's not going to set you up for failure. He knows what he's doing and has a plan. And all you simply have to do is follow Him. Follow Him. Even when it gets hard. Even when it gets difficult. Follow Him. Let Him be your guide. Let's finish up the reading here. Judges chapter 3, 
starting in verse 12. The Israelites again, the Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel because they had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. After Eglon convinced the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join forces with him, he attacked and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms, which is Israel, I mean, which is uh, Jerusalem. The Israelites served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he raised up Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed Benjamite, as a deliverer for them. The Israelites sent him to Eglon, king of Moab, with tribute money. Ehud made himself a double-edged sword, 18 inches long. He strapped it to his right thigh under his clothes and brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was an extremely fat man. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he dismissed the people who had carried it. At the carved images near, near Gilgal, he returned and said, King Eglon, I have a secret message for you. The king called for silence, and his attendants left him. Then Ehud approached him while he was sitting alone in his room upstairs where it was cool. Ehud said, I have a word from God from you, for you. And the king stood up from his throne. Ehud reached with his left hand took the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into Eglon's belly. Even the handle went in after the blade and Eglon's fat closed over it so that Ehud did not withdraw the sword from his belly and Eglon's insides came out. Ehud escaped by the way of the porch, closing and locking the doors of the upstairs room behind him. Ehud was gone when Eglon's servants came in. They looked and found the doors of the upstairs room locked and thought he was relieving himself in the cool room. The servants waited until they became worried and saw that he had still not opened the doors of the upstairs room. So they took the key and opened the doors. And there was their Lord lying on the dead, lying dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while his servants waited. He crossed over the Jordan near the carved images and reached Syria. After he arrived, he sounded the ram's horn throughout the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites came down with him from the hill country and he became their leader. He told them, follow me because the Lord has handed over your enemies, the Moabites, to you. So they followed him Captured the fords of the, captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. At that time, they struck down about ten thousand Moabites, all strong and able-bodied men. Not one of them escaped. Moab became subject to Israel that day, and Israel was peaceful eighty years. Here. We have a fascinating and detailed story about Israel's second major judge and how God used them to kill a king 
and lead Israel to defeat their oppressors. The story once again begins by telling us that right after Althanel died, the Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. As a result, God used Eglon, the king of the Moabites, to form an alliance with the Ammonites and the Amalekites in order to, de to defeat Israel and enslave them for 18 years. Now, just a little bit of background on, the, on, on who, the, who the Moabites were. The 19th chapter of Genesis tells us that the Moabites were a tribe descended from Moab. And who was he? He was the son of Lot. And who was his mother? It was Lot's daughter, his oldest daughter. If you remember the story, they had left Sodom and Gomorrah and they went to a cave and the daughters were thinking it's the end of the world. We need to continue the family line. We need to continue our family. So they tricked their dad and they slept with him and both of them ended up pregnant. Well, anyways, like I said, the oldest, the oldest daughter had a son and named him Moab. Moab. And that's where we get the, the, that's where the tribe of Moabite, the Moabites descended from. So just as the previous generation had done, they also cried out to God and he raised up Ehud to lead and deliver them from slavery. Now, up to this point, up to the right, you know, from the beginning of Ehud's life or until he was called by the Lord to lead, all we know about Ehud, which name means I will give thanks, was that he was a Benjamite. And the Benjamites were the smallest tribe of all, of, of all 12 tribes of Israel. And that he was left-handed. Now back then, being left-handed kind of meant that you were, had a physical disability. They saw you as being, so that something was wrong with you. It was seen as a physical defect and what, did the, what, was often, what, was, what often happened was they would force these left-handers to learn how to become right-handed. Well, anyways, Ehud was a left-handed Benjamite. And also, he was proven to be trusted by the people. And we know this because he was tasked to represent Israel and offer a large amount of tribute money to Eglon. Now, of these three characteristics, there were two that Ehud had no control over, but the other was something that he did. Like Ehud, we had no control over who we were born to or in the way we were born, but we do have a choice in deciding how we live our lives. Don't ever believe that God can't use you because of circumstances that are beyond your control. He can, and He will use anybody, regardless of racial, cultural, or economic status. And despite any personal or socially perceived limitations, He will use you 
He will use a person. Someone once said, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. However, the choices you decide to make have more an impact on your life than all those things you have no control over. One of the greatest gifts God has given you is free will. And with that gift, you can choose to do what is right and good or do what is wrong and evil. Psalm chapter 1, the first three verses says, How happy is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path of sinners or join a group of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside streams of water that bears its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. We also discover in verse 16 that Ehud understood what he needed to do and prepared a plan to do it. When it comes to sin, this is a good example for us to follow. The Bible tells us that we live in a world, that the world we live in, we will face temptations, trials, and tribulations to what? To knock us down, to knock us off our feet. The enemy is there. He, he will use these things to knock us off our feet. We will face trials and tribulations. But planning ahead will prevent this from happening and will keep the devil from driving a wedge between you and God. Proverbs 24 says, A house is built by wisdom and is established by understanding. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with every precious and beautiful treasure. Therefore, it's important, important you plan ahead by knowing the spiritual tools available to you and learning how to use them. Tools like the truth of His Word, the power of prayer, and the fellowship with other believers. Ehud made himself a double-edged sword and kept it close so that he can use it at the right time. Hebrews 4 tells us that we too have a double-edged sword that is sharper than any physical sword, that is sharper than any sword any man can make. And it's this. It's the Word of God. It's the Bible which you must learn how to use and kept close to you so that you may properly use it when needed. Ehud used his sword to kill the man who was oppressing his people. The spiritual sword you have in your hands is more powerful because it can destroy every sin 
that has you enslaved. This is the Word of God. If you know it and understand it, you can use it. Look, Jesus used this, the Word of God, against the devil when he was in the wilderness. The devil just left him alone. If you can use this as a weapon, man, there's nothing anybody can do to you. A Bible, the Word of God. Believe in it. Trust it. Memorize it. And never, ever let go of it. Now, verses 17 to 23 reveal to us how Ehud made the most of his situation in order to execute his plan. First, he took advantage of the fact that no one expected him to be a threat. He basically got a, a top secret security clearance to meet in front of the king because no one thought he was going to be a threat. He wasn't out on social media, you know, talking, all kinds, blasting the king. He wasn't writing letters. He wasn't, you know, doing all kinds of stuff, talking, you know, putting, any, putting the king down or the Moabites, the kingdom down. No, he was just living his life. He wasn't a threat. No one saw him as a threat. Secondly, he ensured that no one who came with him would be involved. What did he do? After they were done giving the tribute, he said, okay, guys, go away. He sent them away. He said, this is my plan. This is my call. And this is what God has called me to do. And I'm going to do it. And he didn't want to involve anybody else. And so he let them go. Thirdly, he waited for the right time and place to get Eglon's, Eglon's attention. He didn't kill him right there on the spot when he gave him the tribute. No, he waited. He, pati he patiently waited. He knew there was going to be a right time and a right moment. And he waited. He trusted in God for that moment to happen. Fourthly, he wisely perceived when an, when an open opportunity when he was left alone with Eglon. He could have said, oh man, this isn't the right, you know, I'm alone with him and, oh man, he's, he's relaxed, sitting in his chair in the cool room. Yeah, no, I, no, he saw it. He was like, he saw the door open and he took it. The opportunity was there and he took it. Fifthly, Without hesitation, he took advantage of that opportunity and killed Eglon while he was at his weakest and most vulnerable. Fat man. Imagine that. He just took his... He, he was a left-handed man. And we're told that the knife was strapped to his right thigh. So either he had it turned this way or he had it here. But he took this 18 inches, right? 18 inches this knife, this double-edged sword that was 18 inches, and just stuck it in Eglon's belly, all the way in. The fat, it says the fat folded over it. And there was just nasty because just everything fell out. His guts, everything. He couldn't even get the, the sword back. It was just in there. He took advantage of that opportunity. He saw it and took advantage of it. And finally, he calmly thought out how to make the most of his escape. 
Did he quickly run out to the porch and jump onto his horse and take off? No, he's like, man, I'm going to lock these doors. And he, locked the, he took the time to lock the doors and make sure that no one was going to you know, come in and follow him. He thought it out. Well, it appears Eglon's servants had no idea what had happened. And so when they came to him, when they came to their Lord, to their master, they saw the doors to his chambers were locked. Now, initially, here's, here's what I came to understand, and here's what some scholars have said, that they thought he was taking his time going number two. I'm not going to get all more visual than that, but that he was taking his time going number two. The word, one of the translations, or one translation says that he had his feet covered. Well, what do you, what does a guy do or any person do when they're going, you know, they drop their trousers and their feet are covered? Well, they thought he was going number two because, another reason why, because of the stench, the smell. Remember, his guts fell out. Everything fell out, so all they could smell was this stench. And the room they were in, there was a cool room, so there was probably a breeze going through it. But after more than usual, the usual amount of time, they became concerned and, locked, and unlocked the room he was in. And there was their Lord lying dead on the floor. Now the story makes no indication that they knew it was Ehud. That they thought it was, that they, they you know, oh yeah, it was, it was Ehud. Or that they went after him. So we must assume that their focus was just on investigating this assassination. Who killed King Eglon? Who did it? All the while, what is Ehud doing? He escapes unharmed all the way up until he met up with his servants. Now the rest of the story tells us how he rallied the Israelites as he led them into battle against the Moabites. As Israel fought them, they were, they were told that they blocked off their, the Moabites' escape and killed about 10,000 of them. The Moabites were soundly defeated. And now the enslavers became the enslaved. And for the next 80 years, the land that Israel possessed was peaceful. We have another picture of God's grace where he could have been like, no, I'm not involving myself in your mess. He, he helped him. He delivered him. He used Ehud to rescue Israel. Ehud had a plan. He may not have known how it was going to play out, but he never wavered in his faith that God would get him through it all. You may be sitting here today trying to figure out a solution to what may seem to be a messy problem. You may be sitting here and thinking, oh man, this thing is going on in my life and I don't know how I'm going to figure it out. This is, I, I, was thinking, I, I was thinking about that this morning myself. And as I'm preparing this study, I'm thinking, I was thinking of things in my own life where it was just, how am I going to do that? It's just a mess. I don't know. And I'm feeling anxious and I'm feeling worried. And, and, and as I'm going through this study, spoke, the Lord spoke to me too. 
And he was telling me, and maybe he's just telling you the same thing. Maybe. Just maybe God wants you to let go of it so that, so that your faith might not be based on men's wisdom, but on God's power. These are learning lessons. These are things that he's trying to teach you and show you about faith. Believing in him, trusting in him. And yes, again, I know it's hard. It's difficult just to let go of the problem and just allow him to take over. But again, he's trying to teach you something. Let me read the last verse. After Ehud Shamgar, son of Anath, became judge, he delivered Israel by striking down 6, 000, or 600 Philistines with an ox goad. This chapter ends by telling us about another ju- judge named Shamgar, who arose and rescued the Israel, Israel from the Philistines. Now, although only one verse is dedicated to him, the fact that Shamgar is mentioned indicates that he was, an, that he was important and accomplished a lot. It is possible that so little is said about Shamgar because his story is so well known. We're told that God used Shamgar to kill 600 Philistines with nothing but an, but an ox goad. This was a stick about eight foot long and six inches around the big end. One end was used to poke, some, poke an ox to get it moving. And on the other end, it was used like a chisel to scrape off the plow of, the, the plow of dirt. Shamgar was merely a lab- laborer doing his job, but he took what, what was in his hand when prompted by God and rescued the people of God from their enemies. It's amazing how God will even use the simplest of tools to accomplish great things. Chapter 3 tells us about three judges, three names that you, are important to remember. Names to remember. Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar. Tell us about judges, three judges who God used to deliver Israel and bring the people back to God. We have a Savior in Jesus Christ who died to deliver the world from, ensla- from the enslavement of sin, to deliver you from the enslavement of sin and bring people into a relationship with God and who one day will judge the living and the dead. He is our judge. He is our savior. He is our redeemer. In all these characters, you see pictures of him. And we mustn't forget that. We mustn't forget what Christ did, what he did for you. Trust him. Believe in him. Surrender your life to him. He died for you. He hung on that cross for you. He wants to give you a new life. He wants to free you from whatever, from all those things that has you enslaved, whether it's drugs, alcohol, pornography, whether it's, um, just name it. 
those things that have you shackled, He wants to free you. You just have to allow Him. You just have to let Him. Surrender your life to Him. And as we close here, I, wherever you're at in your life, don't ever feel like God can't rescue you. Don't ever feel like God cares that you've messed up beyond that you're you're way beyond God's ability to rescue. No, He will rescue you. He will save you wherever you're at, whatever you've done. Don't ever forget that. He wants you to know He loves you. If He didn't, He wouldn't have died for you. But He did. If you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, in a minute we're going to close. Look deep within your heart. Ask the Lord to save you. I mean, the Lord is speaking to you and He's tugging at your heart. Come to Him. Don't let another opportunity pass you by. You may not have another. So let's close in prayer. Lord God, thank you again for your word. Thank you for giving us life. Thank you for giving us these amazing examples, these amazing men that once lived and breathed and and fought and loved and had children and had lives, Lord, and that you've showed us through their stories, Lord, that you can use anybody. So we come to you and ask you, use us. We want to be used, Lord. Lord, Forgive us for those times we've squandered your gifts and for all those times that we just kind of, we just didn't want to follow you. We didn't want to be obedient. We didn't want to hear, obey your calling. So now if anybody has never accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and you're ready to do that, you feel the Lord again pulling the, pulling the strings of your heart and just saying, yes, open the door to me. Well, if you do, He will come in and make His home with you. And if you're sincerely ready for that, just pray this in the quietness of your heart, wherever you are, with, wherever you are with sincerity. God, forgive me for my sins. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe Jesus is Lord. And so now I give my sins completely over to you, Lord. Free me from the bondage of sin. Rescue me, Lord. Use me, fill me, Lord, with your spirit. I accept the forgiveness of Christ on the cross and help me to live my life from now until I die as your follower. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.